So where was your faith in all this? This was one of the most challenging times. You know, I felt like I'd failed in trying to get something up and running in Ethiopia. I was never suicidal, but I was just like, you know, what am I doing? I'm like, I'm not helping my family. I'm not contributing in any way to companies. Why am I not able to do this? My parents helped me get the best education. I got the best education. Like my main focus was not being in a position to help my family. That was my main disappointment. From Lex Monday, you're listening to Faith Collides. It's a show about industry leaders and the stories behind how faith plays into life at work. I'm Grace Wong, and with us today is Arin Pinto. Arin works in the oil and gas industry and serves on the management team at Kudari Group. He joins us to share how his interest in energy and emerging markets took him on a windy path to explore life outside of the U.S., going from India to China to Ethiopia and eventually Iraq. Who knew life could get so difficult after college? Arin excelled in school, got good grades, and into prestigious universities, ended up going to Stanford, but found himself taking big intentional risks after graduation to be and work where he wanted to. Today, you or someone you know might not be in that situation, not working at a job you love or not living out your career goals. Well. Arin's story might just be what you need to hear. It's a story about how to keep pushing when the circumstances just aren't going your way. One of his secrets is to work with what you have. And that lesson really sunk in after Arin got bullied at nine years old. Two guys used to try to bully me. They were my age. I was a little bit skinny and nerdy, and they tried to dunk my head in the toilet. I fought them off, but I was upset when I came home. And my mom was like, what happened? I was like, nothing, nothing. And she kept asking. She didn't let things just go and deal with them on her own. So she knew something was happening. She kept asking. And so I finally told her, and she, she said, okay, Erin, look, I'm gonna gather your sisters here. And she got my sisters around, and she told us to stand in a circle and hug each other and said, look, these are the people who really cares about you. Your sisters, me, your father, and God. And outside of that, you don't have to worry about what other people think of you. Because usually if people are picking on you and messing with you, it's because they're jealous or they have some issues they're dealing with and they want you to have problems too. So when they do that, don't, don't get upset. Just deal with it, find a way to get away from it. And, but don't feel pressure to do what they want you to do or to be like them. So even if Arin was getting bullied, he had a safe haven at home. He had five sisters and was the only son in a multicultural family. His dad was from India and his mom was black. And his parents both worked very hard to create an environment for Arin and his sisters to do their best in school. In Texas, it's a public school system, a zoning system. They made sure that we applied and got into the schools that were better than our neighborhood schools, like the magnet programs, the gifted and talented programs. So it meant long drives for them, a lot of extra effort to get us to and from school. So we knew there was an importance there implicitly. It was never stated to us. They were not hands-on in knowing what was happening at the school. That was somehow our responsibility to know what activities were going on. But then, yeah, I don't know why we really wanted to do our homework. Um, they never forced us to do it. We wanted to play sports and do our homework. We stayed up late, get our work done. So I don't know why 
Um, but they just created that environment and set up the expectation that education was important. So already at an early age, did you already start thinking about college? What was that like? I used to read a lot. No, I was reading a popular science magazine. There's an article about robots and MIT kind of leading some research in a specific area of robotics. And I was like, okay, I want to go to MIT. I didn't at the time really know what that meant. It was kind of what I set my sights on was to go to MIT. And I think we also went to schools that were academically high achieving. So the people around us were talking about college. The other students implicitly, I think there's an understanding that they were going to college. And we never talked about it, but that was our assumption because everyone around us assumed that. Being in the magnet school system was great for Rin because he was around motivated students and some great teachers. But it was not always easy since he wasn't as well off as some of his classmates. He remembers the struggle of really wanting to be cool and asking his parents for nicer things they couldn't really afford. I wanted a pair of Nike Air Max shoes and I really wanted them for my birthday. It was a $100 pair of shoes. I knew money was tight conceptually. I just wanted them. I kept making that clear to my parents. And then I said, you know what? Let me just pray about this. Let me ask God for those shoes and see what God will do for me. When I sat down to pray, I actually said, no, let me not ask God for those shoes. Let me ask God to give me the best shoes for me. And I prayed about it. And then I said to my dad, hey, whatever shoes you think are the best for me, let's go get them. And we went to Mervyn's, which was a store that's closed down in Houston now, but it's kind of like a Kohl's. A name brands at affordable prices. Yes, exactly. So we went to Mervyn's. I knew I wasn't getting the Air Max, a little bit disappointed. But we got some Reeboks, and then we bought them. I put them on. They're comfortable. I played sports in them, and I was like, you know what? These did 100% for me of what the Nikes were going to do, and they cost us one-third of the price. And my sisters can also get shoes. But I was so glad my parents didn't buy me those shoes and waste money. And I was like, if they had, I would have only been doing it for other people to look at me a certain way and not for myself or for my family. That was the first time Arin realized that God was able to give him the wisdom to make a good decision and that there was value in having faith and a relationship with God. But because his mom went to a Pentecostal church and his dad was Catholic, Arun had to do some work to figure out where he stood and what he believed. It was such a stark contrast between the very structured and regimented Catholic church service and then, let's say, the completely unstructured and unpredictable Pentecostal service. <laughs> and so we just saw this huge contrast, and there's almost no way to reconcile them in terms of religion. But as a matter of faith, if you can start to try to understand the Bible on your own, can understand that people can have different interpretations of what's being said in the Bible and what it means to them. So I think at a very young age was kind of forced to seek out a personal understanding in order to reconcile the differences. When it really became personalized for me and like, okay, it impacts your life, God can help you make decisions in this world. Just as Rin started to personalize his faith by asking God what shoes he should get, he also asked God to help him make decisions in other ways that we'll get into a bit later. 
you wanted to go to MIT after you read the popular science magazine. What happened after that when college applications came around? I didn't like writing, and in retrospect, it's probably the most important skill. That's one thing I wish I could go back and do is say, hey, writing is so important, I'll focus on that. I didn't like writing. I was good enough at it, but I just didn't like to spend time writing. And so I minimized the number of applications I would do. And so my plan was to apply to MIT. I had my three applications that I wanted to do. And my father was like, you have to apply to one more school. And I just said, okay, I want to do engineering. Let me look at the rankings and Stanford. With no intention of ever looking or considering to go there, I didn't know anything about it really. And, you know, I just applied. I didn't think much of it and then we started to hear back and I got into MIT, but I heard back from, from Rice, Stanford, MIT that I was accepted and uh, kind of assumed MIT was a foregone conclusion, but we had the chance to visit and we did the visits. I went to MIT first. I had a great time in Boston, saw snow for the first time in my life. I found out that chattering teeth uh, were actually physically possible for human, not just as something that happens in cartoons. Um, it was the coldest I've ever been in my life as a Houstonian in Boston, and I saw snow and mud, and I was like, okay, I'll deal with it for four years. And then a month later, I went to Stanford with my parents, and we drove down Palm Drive, which is a palm-lined street, tall palm trees on either side, a beautiful church, and the, the green oval at the end of it. And that was my entrance. And I was like, whoa, this is, this is interesting. I got to stay at uh, Ujima, the residential dorm for the African-American students or black students. And in my entire academic career, up until that point, I was one of a very few or the only African-American, you know, in all of my classes that were, you know, the AP, IB, courses. If anything had to do with African-Americans, all the eyes would turn to me. And here I was at Stanford with a group of people who had all similarly had shared that experience, were high achievers, had different interests, and, and I got to spend that time there in that dorm. And that was one of the things I think that solidified it on top of the weather. So that first weekend, I think within 24 hours, I told my parents that I'm changing my mind and I'm going to go to Stanford. Arin got into Stanford on a full ride. And while he thought he always wanted to design cars, he ended up getting interested in financial decision-making. So stuff like quantifying scenarios and applying a structured approach to making decisions is what he got into. But when it came time to look for job opportunities, he got the opportunity to go to India for the first time to do an IT internship with Goldman Sachs. Little did he know that being in India would be a turning point for where he wanted to be for work. When I went there in 2005, it was in the middle of a heat wave. It was 112 degrees. The sights, the smells were all extreme. And it was just so invigorating for me. And I knew that I wanted to, to work in emerging markets. So I saw that the impact I could have, the gap between what Delhi looked like in, in Houston, just in terms of the street and the services that people have, was huge. It was like, there's so much to be done in the emerging markets. So when I came to my senior year, I knew I wanted to work overseas. 
Um, I knew I wanted to have a career in emerging markets. I hadn't ruled out nonprofit work by then, but I, I thought that business, to do business the right way, uh, was the way to, to impact people in those markets. And so that's what I was looking for coming out. When I was graduating from my senior year, I did have an offer after my internship in India with Goldman Sachs IT department to work in New York. I was more in finance or consulting. If I had a consulting or finance role that, that would have sent me overseas, I would have taken it, but no one would send me overseas without any experience. And so I went back for the master's program. You can create your own master's at Stanford, your, your own master's program degree, uh, but I just created a focus within the management science and engineering department, and that was energy and development. I could see why you did development because like you said, you went to India and got to experience the whole development side and maybe saw the opportunities there, but why energy? So going into the master's program, I was trying to think, well, what can have the biggest impact on these economies at scale? And I just was like, you know, energy, availability of energy could change lives uh, at a massive scale. So that, that's what my focus was going into my master's program. So I was intentional about designing the master's program uh, to have a focus on energy, to learn as much about the you know, different energy sources, kind of a, a path for development that might apply or could be applicable to different countries. I think at Stanford there was, I would say, a bias to sustainable development in clean energy. Not everyone was obviously focused on that. I tend to be a little bit more agnostic. There's a need for oil and gas. It's cheap and it's proven and there's pathways for it. But the future is definitely needs to be cleaner and there has to be a lot of investment to develop the newer energy sources. And so I just wanted to learn as much about all of them as possible. And the program gave me a chance to do that. After five years at Stanford, Arin graduated with a master's in 2007. And by then, his first choice was work in management consulting. And when that door didn't open, his second choice was to work in emerging markets because of the impact and opportunities he saw in India. He just didn't know what he would do or how he could do it. For Arin and maybe many of us, all we know about life is where we grew up. But when you can go out and see how big and different the world is, your perspective on life and how you think about work can change. Let's take a break. And when we're back, we'll see what Arin did next. Businesses all around the world are feeling the effects of this pandemic. Some have been hurt by it more than others. Peter Fry, the executive director of End Poverty, sees its devastating effects in places we might not see. Especially micro businesses, especially in the developing world where you don't have the buffer and the luxury that, that we have in the States. But also there's not necessarily the infrastructure around in order for the governments to actually provide those stimulus packages in order to help businesses stay afloat. M Poverty is a faith-based nonprofit headquartered in DC with a 35-year track record of bringing small business loans and skills training to poor entrepreneurs all around the world. And unfortunately, their global network of micro-entrepreneurs have been hard hit by this pandemic in places like Bangladesh, Guatemala, and Cameroon. In Cameroon, actually, we're serving internally displaced peoples, so, which has been going on with a lot of domestic fighting for the past three to four years. 
And so you can imagine on top of the civil war, you have a pandemic. And so we're serving domestic refugees who are homeless, living in the churches, trying to provide for five or 10 children. The Good Samaritan Fund is designed to actually give them $50 to purchase chickens or a tailoring sewing machine to be able to start generating an income and start providing for their families. The need is way out beyond what we can provide. But we're creating this Good Samaritan Fund, which is like a business resuscitation fund. This Good Samaritans Fund is their response to help 2,600 of their most vulnerable micro-entrepreneurs. And we want to let you know you can also be part of it if you're financially able. Because 50 bucks might get you a pair of shoes, but it can also fund someone's business needs to survive during this unprecedented time. To find out more, check out mpoverty.org and click on their COVID-19 relief tab. Thanks for caring. Welcome back. Arun's first trip to India opened his eyes to the potential of working abroad. But after he completed his graduate program in energy and development, he had his sights set on a different country. I had the goal to go to China because China is very practical about their approach to energy. And China was adding a coal plant every week on average to their generation capacity at that time. But they were also investing massively in wind, solar, and other renewable technologies. And they were looking out to secure their future supply chain for oil and gas. Those are the numbers and the scale that you see in China. So I was like, I wanna get there and learn what I can and, and see if I can do anything in China. So I didn't speak Chinese. I needed to find a way to get there. And it really had to have been God because before I graduated, this program came up where a professor whose class I had been in were involved with it. And I got to apply as part of a 12 person cohort to be part of an exchange program with Tsinghua, which is like the MIT of China. I was like, this is incredible. I want to go to China. And I got a chance to do that. And I had an internship with a nonprofit called the uh, Natural Resources Defense Council. So I went and studied economics at Tsinghua for three months and then a, did about a two-month internship with the NRDC. And then I had to decide what I was going to do. And I decided at the end of the program to go back and try to set up Energy Crossroads. Energy Crossroads was a student-led conference from Arun's master's program that got luminaries like Pulitzer Prize winner Thomas Freeman to participate in discussions on the future of energy. So when Arun saw this event happen at Stanford, he envisioned the same program set up in China. And that's what Arun did after he finished his master's. And with that entrepreneur spirit, he decided to self-fund his trip but quickly found out getting things done in China was very different from what he was used to. So you got to China and you got to learn Mandarin and you got to set up a conference. How would you describe that experience of bringing energy crossroads to China? It was very difficult. There were a lot of cultural challenges. So one, at that time, and maybe it's changed now, everything was a conference or formal events were all driven by the institutions and the professors. So one, to talk about that concept, when I talked to my professor at Tsinghua, she's like, well, usually it's done by the professors and not, not by the student. Which is a completely different experience for you at Stanford. Right, right. We could drive whatever we wanted. And if we had an idea, we could get funding and go do that. So that was a first surprise. 
And even talking to the students, they're like, oh, we can't do that. But in 2008, China was preparing for the Olympics. There was a sea of change already underway. The city physically was changing with signs going up in English starting at that time. I think the timing is right for students and the administrations to say, well, hey, why not? Let's try to support a student-led event. And I was just trying to help connect the dots. And then I left before the actual conference happened uh, because I ran out of money. I was self-funding it. I was teaching English two or three times a week, and that wasn't enough to cover all my costs. I had some money left over from having worked in college, and so I was exhausting that. My dad said, I'll pay for your ticket back. So I was just biding my time and trying to make it work. When I started to run out of money, I started to look for a job. You realized, okay, this was not sustainable, and you just had to make a decision. What did you do? I had started to look for a job. My friends knew about it. He worked at Schultz Global Investments, a private equity firm, and they were based in Beijing at the time. And he said, well, we just opened an office. Why don't you come interview, see what we're doing, and see if it's a fit for you? Within two weeks of the interview, ended up packing what I could fit in two bags, giving away the rest, and flying directly to Ethiopia from China. And so they opened the office in May, and I moved in October. You know, so it's still pretty early <laughs> um, and helped set up the Wi-Fi in the upstairs of the office. And that was that. Wow. What was it like for you with African roots to go to a place in Africa? Ethiopia was a very unique time for me. By skin color and hair texture, I blended in. Ethiopians probably thought I was mixed. They were like, you're not 100%, you, you don't speak Amharic. But I blended in, just sitting at a table, I didn't stand out. Like in China, everyone's staring at you. <laughs> you're the tallest person. In China, I'd walk with my friend from South Africa with dreads, and I had a curly afro, and so you go to the tourist sites and people would be pulling my hair. Wanting a photo with you. Yeah, photos with kids. Kids without diapers with the access hole in the back of their pants. We'd have to hold their pictures. So it was a spectacle when we went out. In Ethiopia, I, I blended in. I didn't speak any Amharic when I got there, and the expectation was that I did. So there was a, a little bit of an extra push for me to learn Amharic because people would speak it to me by default. I was learning a lot. It was my first real job outside of college, and I was just learning. I was learning a lot from our managing director in Ethiopia, the guys back in Beijing. So I had a lot of good mentorship and learning. So for me, I, I didn't take it for the money I was making a very small amount, I think maybe $2,000 a month. I don't remember exactly, but it wasn't a lot compared to my classmates. <laughs> Even though Arun didn't make a lot of money from his first job in a developing country, he just took it to get the experience of what private equity was like in Ethiopia. Arun says there were lots of regional challenges, like with bookkeeping. He found out that many of the business owners had more than one set of books, for example, one for the tax man, one for the family, and one for the investors. So the hard part was getting a true picture of their finances. And after a year and a half at Schultz Global Investment, Arun just felt he should be compensated a bit more. What do you do when you feel like your experiences and value to a company doesn't match up to what they're paying you? Arun thought about his options and felt he needed to start his first salary negotiation. So I tried to negotiate. I asked for what I thought was a reasonable salary for someone coming out. And private equity, you should get paid pretty well, right? Yeah, yeah. It's private equity. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we're, we're in Ethiopia we're early. Yeah. You know, there's tension for me, my first salary negotiation. So I prepared. I did my research. I think I asked to triple my salary. 
We discussed it. We negotiated it, and I think there was just a mutual agreement. Hey, there's not an overlap in the business case right now for the company, and I think it just wasn't worth it for the firm at the time. And for me, I didn't think to stay at, at the salary that I was going to stay at wasn't worth it for me. And so we agreed, hey, okay, you're right. This doesn't make sense. I'm going to try some things, and the company's going to be fine and, and recruit someone, and, and I moved on. And you moved on to do something that you felt was worthwhile of your time to be in an emerging market. And so what was that? I didn't have the clearest view on what I could do. I think I had about $12,000 to my name. I wanted to start a company in Ethiopia. And by the time I got through trying to meet all the government offices and understanding how to get through bureaucracy to do something in the energy sector, I realized actually basically it almost ran out of money. So <laughs> I had to fly back home. Did your dad still extend that offer that he was going to buy you that ticket? I'm sure he would have. They were already going to let me stay at home when I moved back. Within a year, Arin went from living in Ethiopia with a small salary to living at home and off of his savings because Arin felt he needed to take a risk to be somewhere different and to start something new. He was willing to reach out to new clients in the U.S. for consulting projects. He did cold calls and also networked to get proper introductions into companies. But it took some time to get traction. And that started to challenge his faith. How did you feel when you were back home? This was 2010 when I moved back. I was feeling a bit of pressure to help more at home. Because 2010 was right after the financial crisis. My father's company had gone through a round of layoffs. In general, I just didn't want to be a financial burden with the uncertainty in the house on my parents. Well, I wanted to contribute, so I was really open for a job, but I was also trying to, you know, get my own thing going in a consulting basis until I could build something up. So where was your faith in all this? This was one of the most challenging times. I felt like I'd failed in trying to get something up and running in Ethiopia. I was never suicidal, but I was just like, my classmates are making all this money, a lot of them. Maybe I should have just gone into finance and consulting. You know, what am I doing? I'm not helping my family. I'm not contributing in any way to companies. Why am I not able to do this? My parents helped me get the best education. I've got the best education. My main focus was not being in a position to help my family. That was my main disappointment. There's one night where I was just like, again, I started to pray about money. God, you tell me I want to be able to help my family in the best way I can. The answer I got was not money. It wasn't about a job or anything. What was really put on my heart was like, your mom takes care of the house by herself and cleans the dishes every night until 2 a.m. So I started to just clean the dishes and try to take the load off of my mom. And that was a big surprise for my mom, but I got to see like being there for your family and being emotionally present for my father or my family, it's not all about money. And so I had kind of put a lot of things on finances that were not even the most critical parts and things that people in my life needed. That was my kind of breaking, a mental break where it's like money is not how you help people. There's a deeper spiritual, uh, mental, emotional element to what people need, and it's not just money. And that's where God wanted to bring me, I think, through all of that. It was a breakthrough for Arin to reconfigure how he thought about money, that it wasn't the end-all, be-all answer. He had something valuable to give, apart from any salary figure or job status. Is this something you might be able to identify with? 
the weight and emphasis we put on money and how we tie it to our value, ability to contribute, and oftentimes our security. It wasn't until Arin was almost at the bottom of his savings that things turned around. I also started to consider going to business school because I was down to my last like $2,000. And I think I put down the business deposit. That was, that was my last $700. <laughs> I was like, okay, I got to do something. And maybe I'll go to business school if I don't get any traction anywhere. And then this came through the week before I was supposed to, to go to business school. Right in the nick of time, Arin secured a consulting contract with Kudari Group, a Houston-based company with oil and gas contracting and other businesses in Iraq. And Arin had come to know this company because his younger sister was interning there. He got to pitch some research projects that led to a three-month contract opportunity with them. Little did he know that this would actually open the doors for him to do so much more. Within the first month, they won a big contract for a gas compressor station. Compressor stations are basically how pumps pump oil through a pipeline. Compressor stations push gas through a pipeline. And I wanted to work on gas infrastructure. They didn't mention this when we, we first talked in our pitch. They wanted me to be the project manager. And I told them, I don't have experience on oil and gas infrastructure. Um, I'm not a professional engineer. And they said, no, we, but we trust you to put the right infrastructure around the project and, and help us manage it. So that's what I did. This is the area where ISIS first swept through when they came to Iraq was where these projects were. And so this was for compressor stations in the northern part of the country in one of the most challenging areas, which is disputed by the, the Kurdish part and the central government. And so I went to Iraq. It was the, the Brussels Oil and Gas Conference. And everyone was setting up for this conference. As we heard one bomb and everyone stopped for about 30 seconds, looked around to see what's happening. Everything was okay, went back to work. I was outside near the main gate. I was like, what? Everyone just went back to work? I started to walk back and then I walked inside and we heard a second explosion. Everyone stopped for about 15 seconds. And after 15 seconds, I went back to work and I just got inside and then there was a small, you know, faint bomb, the third one. And everyone stopped for five seconds and went back to work, and, and that was it. It turns out there was a market, and I think three motorcycle bombs, coordinated attack, had gone off. But that was the only time that I ever felt at risk or threatened. While the work environment was in a high-risk area, Arin got to soak up and quickly learn Arabic and the political nuances there. The project management work itself wasn't too difficult to pick up either. To me, the project management wasn't a big jump. Uh, the subject matter was to learn about engineering and be able to ask the right questions for hiring an engineering firm. And I just read a lot, downloaded handbooks, just spent hours and hours reading and, and getting up to speed. I knew I wasn't going to become an engineer per se, but I could ask the right questions. But you did good enough of a job, Kudari wanted you after the three months. It was like, here's a monthly retainer and we're going to work on these projects. So. Did they tell you, I'm going to give you a monthly retainer, or did you come up with that in a negotiation? How did you start this whole consulting thing by yourself for someone who might have to be in your shoes? Again, I was less focused on how much money I was going to make in that moment as opposed to winning a contract. Again, it was a small amount. It was like 3500 something like that to get started. But I just wanted to start working, learn about the group, and see where I could add value. And so at one point, though, you remember that experience that you had at the Schultz Global Investment. You got to a point where you were adding value to the project there. Did you end up feeling like, I need to have a conversation? 
With, with Kuderi Group, that wasn't an issue where I had to kind of push to, to say I deserve more value. It wasn't a hard discussion. They were like, well, look, you've been doing this and you're adding more value. And I think it's always been kind of understanding their culture is one to pay for performance. So I've never had that any kind of real push that, hey, I'm, I'm not being treated fairly here. Also, working in Iraq, where there's a lot of challenges in terms of, of corruption and risk for an American, a lot of other groups and companies leave Iraq because it's very challenging. And you, you take some big losses and you take a lot of risk to be there. The vision of the group is to rebuild Iraq, to be best in class, to, to set an example for the employees and how business can be done. So that aligns with my values. And it's a great place for me to learn and see how entrepreneurship is done. It's been 10 years since Arin's first meeting at Qadari Group. Today, he manages their Dubai office and also serves on the management team as director of business development. While we could go on and get into the really noteworthy projects and achievements Arin has since made, we really wanted to focus on sharing his journey, his story of how getting to where he wanted to wasn't easy. Today, you might be frustrated with where you are in your career or with something at work, but often, what we feel is the best solution to our situation isn't the only one, or necessarily even the best one. Remember how Arin learned to pray about a pair of shoes, and God showed him the best shoes to buy weren't what he thought he wanted. And also, the time he came back from Ethiopia and felt down about not being able to help out his family during economic uncertainty, God showed him the best thing he could do at that time was to be emotionally present help his mom with the dishes. Right now, in this time of COVID and global uncertainty, you might not feel like you're in the best of spots. God knows and can speak into what you can do with what you have now. Arin leaves us with this piece of advice. It's very hard when, when you see everyone else around you succeeding or projecting success to not compare yourself to what they're doing. And let's say your relative lack of success, but life is much more than that. So I think the first thing is to look at, hey, what can I do right now? What can I improve right now in my life, in my relationships, in my physical activity, my health, and do those things today, not tomorrow and not next week. If you do those things today, if you improve your relationships, improve your health, improve your discipline, those will feed into your future career, your future business, whatever challenges you're gonna overcome in the future. And so doing today what you can and what's in your control is something that can have a huge impact on how you do things in the future. And then being flexible. A good friend of mine told me, pick a place that you wanna be and then find the best job that you can do there or pick the job you wanna do and be willing to go anywhere to do it. And in a time of great disruption, the world is not going to disappear overnight. Right? So there are all new opportunities. In the destruction, things have to be rebuilt. There's new opportunities. There's new needs being created. It's true. There are new opportunities and new needs that need to be met. Look out for our next episode where we talk to someone in an industry that's been booming during COVID and after the stay-at-home orders. It's probably not a job you thought you'd be doing, and it actually has something to do with gaming. We'll be dropping this episode in two weeks. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Faith Collides Podcast or follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest news. Hope you have a blessed week.
This is Grace Huang, and we hope our stories can revive your work week. Faith Collides is hosted and produced by me. This episode is edited by Shaina Lee, Joshua Huang, and Joshua Batson. Audio mixing by Joshua Huang, and thanks for listening.